Hello, and welcome to Rough Edges Podcast with Sarah I. Fox. In this podcast, I will guide you through my faith and mental health journey to dispel the stigma surrounding mental illness and to create an empowering resource for those who wish to discover more about these topics. I pray that this podcast will not only bless you, but that it will bring growth and healing to our communities. Hey there, Sarah here. Before you dive into today's episode, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your support and for hitting that play button. If you want to expand on that support, here are three ways that you can do so. One, leave a review. If anything in today's episode resonated with you or you want to share how the podcast changed your life, you can do so by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Two, check out our shop. The Rough Edges Shop is a faith-based, women-of-color-owned online shop where you can get a variety of products from tote bags, journals, t-shirts, crewnecks, and more. 20% of the proceeds go to a mental health organization. So check it out at roughedgespodcast.com slash shop. Three, connect on social media. Rough Edges is on a variety of social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and more. If you want to connect outside of listening to the podcast episodes, you can do so on those platforms. If you have any more questions or want more information on the ways that I've just discussed, you can check out the episode description or stay to the end for more information. Now, enjoy your episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Rough Edges. Today, I am joined by a very special guest. His name is Clint Callahan. Clint is a seasoned social worker, therapist, and now life coach over his 23-year career, and he has effectively aided thousands of people in enhancing their lives and relationships. He has observed the profound positive changes in his personal life and the lives of his clients by utilizing the Small Changes Big Impact 1% Per Day Transformational System. It's about teaching people practical and psychological tips to beat burnout and stress in 15 minutes a day. He also recently published his first book entitled Beat Burnout in 15 Minutes a Day, How to Prioritize Yourself Without Losing What Matters Most. Welcome, Clint. Thank you. Are you sensing a theme? (laughs) (laughs) So, Clint, to get to know you a little bit better, what are three things that you can't live without and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Pizza, because, you know, it's pizza. Um, <laughs> I'd say pizza, my, I'd say my kids, my, my family and scuba diving, because I love being underwater. I just happen to live in Colorado, so I don't get to do that as much as I'd like. Mm, okay. That's awesome. Like I definitely relate to you on the pizza part. Like I, <laughs> honestly, I really do. Do you like pineapples on your pizza? Oh, I'm sorry. Fruit on pizza. Whoever did that should be shot. I'm sorry. No, I know. No, no, no. And no. <laughs> oh, good. I agree. I agree with that. 100%. <laughs> 
So Clint, I am so excited for our conversation today, but before we dive into our topic, can you tell me about your healing journey? Like, how did you become the person that you are today? Sure. Well, I, for me, I have to start all the way back at when I was born, just because I, when I was born, I weighed one pound, 15 ounces. So at 47 years ago, they didn't have the technology they had today. So I was definitely a micro preemie and Little did I know that that would impact and influence the rest of my life just because, you know, basically my first four years was was kind of abandonment, but also not because, you know, I was in an incubator. And so I had to be poked and prodded by doctors and had surgeries and all these different things. And I didn't really recognize or realize how much that would affect the rest of my life. Because the thing is, is trauma happens to you. It doesn't happen around you. It's, you know, like, being in a car accident, right? It's car accident happens. You can't change that, but how it changes you, that changes the rest of your life. And so for me, that's where it all started was that is that, you know, from there, you know, my parents told me that I was really lucky to be alive. I was lucky to be able to walk and talk and breathe and see and do all these things that a lot of other kids that were born at the same time as me and that were early didn't get to do because they either didn't live or they weren't able to, you know, make it through and be quote unquote normal, whatever, you know, that looks like I'm still trying to see if I am that or not. I'm still working that out. But from there, I went to elementary school, junior high, high school, and I was bullied a lot as a kid. And that caused a lot of anxiety, people pleasing and depression and those kind of things. And so that triggered just the feelings of like, I missed so much school because I was, I had somatic symptoms from being so anxious as a kid. Mm. And then it switched to anger where then I ended up being angry all the time. And that's when my parents put me in therapy at the first time when I was around 12 years old. My memory's not quite so good. So I think it was 12, but that's what I'm going to say. So, and, but that then gave me the language and started teaching me that, oh, there is words for what's going on. I'm not just happy. I'm not just sad. I'm not just angry. There's other feelings besides the big three that most of us recognize, right? Mm -hmm. And so- Going through that and with the bullying created the confusion of why is it that when in my friend group, I was the target, but when it was me one-on-one with my friends, there I wasn't the target. So it was this really confusing time that then led into my love of psychology because it helped me to define and create words around why things happened the way they did. And then from there, you know, I started being a therapist. I moved to California. I met my wife. Then my mom got sick and she ultimately ended up taking her own life um, Mm -hmm. when I was 29. And that led to grief and depression and anxiety and all those things coming back again. And from there, I quit doing therapy for about three or four years. And then around 2009, you know, the market collapsed for real estate. And so I lost everything. And my wife and my son, my newborn son and myself had to go live with her parents for two years. Mm -hmm. It was in that moment that I figured out that I was profoundly burned out. And I wasn't just burned out because of work. I was burned out because of my life, because of being a new parent and being exhausted all the time. I was burned out because of the way I was feeling about myself and that burnout isn't just about work. It's multidimensional. It it invades every aspect of your life. And that's where this whole thing of, you know, small changes, big impact came from is I had to change myself. I had to make a decision in that moment. 
who did I want to be as a man? Who did I want to be as a father? Who did I want to be as a husband, as as a therapist, as just a human on this planet? And I had to begin to figure out how to do that. And so I went back to, you know, just doing very small things. Like the first thing I did is I'd meditate like three minutes, like three minutes, because as a, having a newborn, I didn't have more time than that. So I meditated for three minutes and then I began to journal after my meditation. So about five minutes a day, I would do these different things. And from that, it allowed me to create this process of just using the psychological tools I have and using these different meditation and breath work and different techniques to kind of be more holistic in my own healing. And that's been a journey that I've done now for about the past 10 years. And then the last five years of it, I've been teaching this to my clients as a therapist. And I've seen amazing results of helping people to process and get through their trauma, their grief, their depression, their anxiety, their imposter syndrome, all the things that affect us every day. But mostly I found that all roads tend to lead back to burnout because we are all burned out in some way because in the world today, it's 24-7 on all the time if you let it. Mm, so mm -hmm. that's kind of how I started my whole process. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, I know really... a lot to go through, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just really love like your story because it just shows that with resilience and also engaging in holistic healing, that can really make a difference for somebody to move forward. And I'm just also just like touched by your empathy and also your boldness to share like your experiences with other people and to also want to help others. I mean, that's like another huge step, like just helping other people heal as well. So I just love your story. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Well, yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because it's my story. I, I don't know how else to tell it because I lived it. So for me, it's like, yeah, this is what I went through and here I am now and it's all good. And, you know, it took some work, but I figured out my way through and everybody else can too. Just come on, let's go. And it's, I forget that, you know, everybody has their own version of that story. And that's the piece, right? Is that it resonates with people because we've all been in those places where we felt isolated and alone and in the dark and not knowing where to go. And then somehow there we find this pinprick of light that we begin to maybe walk towards or maybe we get too scared and we don't walk towards it. And so then you go find a life coach or a therapist or a best friend or your parent or someone to talk about these feelings. And they finally give you sometimes the kick in the butt that you need to get moving, right? Yes, I agree with that, especially the, like the power of community. Like it is something that is just people just underestimate how like much of an impact community can have in your exactly. life, you know? But, yeah. yeah. And it's the thing, right, is most of the time when we're in the depths of our pain, we don't want to burden other people. We don't yeah. give them the opportunity to help us. And that is for me where I think the largest flaw in our mental health system right now is that it tends to be a solo endeavor because I don't want to be seen as ill. I don't want to be seen as sick. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell anybody what I'm going through. But right. it's one of the things that, you know, AA, NA, you know, group therapy, these different things, they exist and they help because when you hear another person relate something where even if 10% of it matches something that you feel, it's like, wait a minute, 
I'm not 100% alone. Yes. Oh, wow. And so that's why the program I created is a combination of its video lessons for people to watch and learn. And they're all 15 minutes because I'm living by my code. And then I do group sessions with people on Zoom so they can have community and talk to each other and see that they're not the only one going through the stages of burnout or where they're at in their life and the issues that they're having. Because that's the most important thing to recognize is you're not alone in this. We've all been through stuff. And that's why I'm not afraid to tell people my story. Because if even one person just gets a little bit of help from hearing that even someone who's a therapist, even someone who's done this for 23 years, even someone who should know the right way to solve problems screws up still, maybe that'll help, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's so good. But I do want to talk about burnout because sure. that is the theme of this conversation. <laughs> so what are some of the signs of burnout that people often miss, you would say? Sure. So burnout isn't what people think it is. They think it only has to do with work, that it's only a work problem. Like, oh, you're just working too much. You just need to work less. You just need to go take that vacation. You just need to, you know, step back from work. You just need to do this thing and you'll beat burnout. And that's not what it is. What it is, is it's a gradual systemic collapse of you being connected first to yourself. The first red flag is you have a desire for solitude. You begin to stop going to social events. You begin to dodge going to work meetings. You begin to dodge your friends. You begin to just start needing all this time alone because you just don't feel like you have the energy. And then the next thing that you go through, at least for me, was I began to neglect my own self-care. I stopped going to the gym. I started eating worse. I didn't bathe regularly. I wasn't shaving regularly. I was doing all these things where I wasn't caring about me anymore. And then the next phase for me, the third phase, was my relationships started to falter because I began distancing myself from my support network. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to my family. I wouldn't talk to my close friends. I wouldn't talk to my wife because I didn't want to burden them with the mm -hmm. fact that I wasn't able to perform at the level that I thought they needed me to perform at. Not what they needed, what I thought. It always comes back to you and what you think because mm -hmm. that's our perception. It makes our reality. And then the last thing that started happening was I started to disengage from work. I started to miss meetings. I started to screw up. I started to disconnect from everything. I became basically disconnected from me, from friends, from family, from life, from my kids, from work, in every single thing. And mm. if at any point I would have recognized this, instead of just thinking, oh, I'm just tired. I'm just having a bad day. It's my, the people I work with are really exhausting or whatever it is that I was, that my brain was telling me. I didn't see the signs. And only now, after going through this over a decade later, I mean, I went through burnout for about seven years. I was profoundly burned out. And then when I finally started to pull out of it, I began to see these signs and I'm like, they were so clear. Why didn't I see them? Well, because I didn't, because I was living it. And when you're living something, you might not be able to see it, but you feel it. So that's why when people hear this, it's like, oh, wow, that, that makes so much sense. When I've been burned out, I feel that. I see that. And that's the difference is that's why I do this. That's why I'm so open about it because I need people to understand that 
It's not what you think. It's not just too much work. You need to take a step back and take a breath and analyze those areas of your life. Yeah, I didn't even think of those symptoms either, because like you said, you usually think it's like about work. It's about like, oh, maybe I'm stressed at work, but it's like, no, you could be stressed in all these other areas and not even realize it, you know? And I have like a follow-up question to this one, but how is burnout different from depression? Because there are some similarities, but I know that there are some differences too. Mm -hmm. So think of depression as the umbrella and burnout as the handle of the umbrella. They're a Mm -hmm. part of the same thing because within burnout, you can find anxiety, depression, you can find, you know, OCD tendencies, you can find trauma, you can find all these things under burnout because burnout is not a therapeutic label. It's more of the umbrella that covers all these other things, right? It's Mm -hmm. actually, yeah, it's, it's different. It's burnout is the umbrella and and depression is the handle and the spokes. That's what it is. And so that's the different thing, right? Is you, when you're depressed, yeah, you feel like you can't handle things, like you can't function. And, and depression is also multidimensional. It's not just a chemical thing going on in your brain. It can be a chemical thing. It can be a thought thing. It can be an environmental thing of the people that you're around. It can be all these different things. And that's the stuff that people don't really recognize when it comes to mental illness and mental health is that it's not just a thought thing. It's not just a chemical thing. It literally is you and everything around you, the people, the food you eat, the, you know, do you drink too much? Do you, are you using drugs? Are you, you know, are you, are you soothing with too much phone time? Are you watching, are you binge watching too much TV? All these different things affect the way that you are in the world because it's person in environment is that's that's the model that I got trained under. And so many people in, of course, in the Western world, especially, we separate our brain from our body and mm-hmm. that doesn't work. It all is the same package. So if this is in an environment that is not healthy for you, then you will begin to feel unhealthy, whether you want to or not. Speaking of models, I know that you have a transformational system Mm -hmm. called Small Changes, Big Impact, 1% per day transformational system. So how did that come about? Sure. So the book actually that I wrote, How to Beat Burnout in 15 Minutes a Day, is actually based on my transformation, is on that system. And so the way that system came about was when I was profoundly in my most burned out, about probably three to four years in, I really noticed how disconnected I was from my kids and from my wife and from all these different things where I was showing up physically and I looked like I was happy and healthy and I was a part of this stuff and I was doing all the things that I was supposed to do, but inside I was disconnected. I wasn't really there. And Mm. so I decided in that moment, you know, I don't want to be one of those people that just phones it in. I'm, as you can tell, I'm not that kind of person. That's not who I want to be. And so I had to figure out, well, what do I have to do to change that? So I went back to like mindfulness and meditation and, and I started using some Buddhist practices that I learned when I was in college. And so I started meditating about three minutes a day where it was just sitting and just breathing and just seeing what filtered to the surface of my thoughts. It was seeing how many of the same thing came up again and again during that three minutes. And for most people, they're like, well, three minutes is nothing. How can you 
how can you even get anything out of three minutes? And it's like, well, when's the last time you actually sat down for three minutes without your phone, no. without anything, and just sat and let your brain roll around and mm. not tried to stop thinking? Because that's where most people get meditation wrong. Telling your brain to stop thinking is like telling the wind not to blow. and <laughs> It doesn't mm -hmm. work because that's what your brain is designed to do. So right. sitting there and just observing the thoughts and seeing what keeps coming up is what then allows you to begin to look inside of yourself and see mm. what's going on in me. And then you take those thoughts and you write them down. And then you go about your day. And then around lunchtime, I do the same thing. I take five minutes, I meditate for three, and I journal for two to see Okay, am I still on track? Are my thoughts still going the same way? Have I changed tactics? Where am I right now? And then I do that in the evening. And then so that's what I started with. But in the midst of all that, it allowed me. So that's 15 minutes a day, right? Broken into mm -hmm. three chunks. If you can't find five minutes three times a day, then I don't know what to tell you because you can figure that out, right? Yeah. And so when I went through that, it allowed me to then begin after I began to do that, I got into the deeper parts of what I was thinking about. Why am I thinking this way? How am I thinking this way? What's the story I keep telling myself that keeps me stuck where I am? Because all of us are programmed by story. That's, that's the language of our brain. It's the story that we tell ourselves. And the story comes from multiple different places. It comes from ourselves. It comes from what other people has told us. It comes with teachers, doctors, nurses, society, media, um, your parents, you know, grandparents, friends, all these different things add into the story that we then say about ourselves. And mm -hmm. the great thing about today is we are now able to express our story in multiple different ways. And it's now encouraged for people to have their own story and share their own story in a way that has never been easier in human history to do that, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love that take on meditation because it's not in like the traditional sense of how you would think about it. It's just like yeah. sitting in silence or it's yes. just like playing music and like trying to clear your mind, as they say. Yeah. Like, I never even thought of just letting the thoughts like just come and then write yeah. down what you're thinking and kind of reflect on why you think those thoughts. So that's exactly. cool. And the best way to do it, so one of my Buddhist teachers, the way they taught me, this is the imagery I keep in my head. I have an island. I'm sitting in the center of the island on a cushion or a rock or whatever. And around the island is just this river that flows around. It just goes in a circle around the island. And on hmm. that island are little boats. And each boat is color-coded and has a little flag that tells me what the thought is and all that stuff. But what happens is when you sit and you just allow, and those are my thoughts. They're just right there in the water in front of me, and they're going to flow around. As they get out of my eye line, most disappear, but some keep coming back. And those are the mm -hmm. ones I pay attention to. And so it's a very simple process to use your mind's eye to create this. I have another person that I've taught this to where they do it on a NASCAR track. I wouldn't do that because that would be too crazy for me. But for them, they sit in the middle of a NASCAR track and they let the cars race around. And then they notice, oh, that car keeps coming back. Why does that keep coming back? Huh. I'm going to put that down because that's interesting. Because really it comes back to the one thing I've learned being a therapist and being alive for this long is if you don't own the problem, you can't find the solution. That's ultimately what it comes back to is most of us do so much to deny that we have anything going on with us 
that we don't actually stop and go, well, why is it going on? What am I doing to be a part of this? Because who wants to admit that they're a part of the problem? Not many people. (laughs) Right, right. No, that's so true. Wow, that's like, that's very interesting imagery. Like, I'm definitely going to try like to visualize (laughs) in that way. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that. So kind of transitioning into a part of your mission, if you will, like behind the system, you believe that group-based psychoeducational mental health care is beneficial for, and it's something that we need today. So how is it beneficial to help others manage their mental health? It's exactly like what you and I were talking about before, right? It's the community aspect of things because in today's world, we are more interconnected, but more kind of disconnected than ever because the things that we use to connect, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all these things have been designed to trigger in our brains using all the bio-neurochemical feedback stuff from all the doctors and therapists and all the people that help them design these systems to trigger in our brain, oh, I clicked like on that person's post. So therefore, I now connected with them, so I'm good. I created a dopamine rush in my brain that makes me feel like I am now connected to other people. But that's false connection. There's nothing. This is more of a connection than that. And that's the, that's the piece, right? Is that's what we're missing because so many people you, and the thing about social media is it creates this confirmation bias because it's basically a slot machine algorithm that gives you what you think you want. So maybe sometimes the first thing is what you were looking for, or it's the fifth thing, or it's the seventh thing, or it's the 12th thing, but it keeps you coming back for more. And when it happens, bing, dopamine hit. And then you feel like, oh, I connected. But really, with all the Facebook friends you have, how many of them could you call and it helped you bury a body in the middle of the night? Probably nobody, right? It's that kind of thing. I don't recommend that, by the way, but you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that is a very good point. Because it's, it's just also the fact that we're just so divided on so many issues. Mm -hmm. It's like we're all polarized. And we're all in our little corners and saying, okay, I stand for this. And whoever doesn't stand for that same thing. I'm not going to talk to you or I'm going to trash talk you and get Mm -hmm. into heated arguments with you. And we've just lost that sense of connectivity and also community where like you said we can like be able to lift each other up in those moments and exactly yeah i i appreciate like you even saying about the media because the media plays a huge role in how we see each other because sometimes you go on social media and you see somebody else and you're like man Mm -hmm. i wish i had what they had Mm -hmm. or i wish i had that life you know yeah yeah. And the thing about social media is that people forget is that's like 1% of a person's life, probably even less. It's probably like 0.1% of that person's actual life. Or maybe mm-hmm. it took them 75 times to get that exact picture that they wanted to post. You know, and yeah. that's the thing that we also forget is all this stuff is made up. All the, everything is made up. Society is made up. Money is made up. The way that we interact with each other, we're all making it up as we go along every second of every day, from the moment we open our eyes, to the moment we close our eyes at night, we're making it up. Everything you and I have talked about, you and I have made up between the two of us. We didn't know exactly what we were going to do. I didn't know exactly what I was going to say or not say. 
This is just, we're making it up as we go along because that's the thing that people forget is that because if you recognize that you're making up stuff as you go along, that also then gives you grace. It gives you the ability to know that failure is a part of that. And that's Uh the thing I really try and teach people is failure has to be a part of your goals so that you can keep going after the goal. Because that's one of the most important lessons I've learned when it comes to goal setting is, you know, there's two things. The first thing you need to know is you have to look at your goals from a be, do, have process where who do you want to be once you have everything? Like that's what it comes down to. First you be, then you do, then you have. If you do it that way, when you get to that mountaintop that you're trying to get to, you know who you are, you know what you want, and you know how you want to continue. And that's why it's so important. For sure. No, I I really love that, you know, just thinking about who you are and what you want to do with your life. Because a lot of the times, you're right, we don't give ourselves the grace that we need in order to keep moving forward. And I know for speaking for myself, I'm a perfectionist. And so that grace portion is definitely not there a lot of the times. (laughs) Perfectionism at its core is the desire to prove that you deserve to be there. That's what perfectionism is. It's you saying, see, I've earned this. See, I've owned this. I can do this. But the problem with perfectionism is it's an impossible standard. Yeah. How how can you be perfect? If you've ever met anybody perfect, I want to meet them because I've never met them. And I've probably talked to four or 5,000 people over the course of my career, probably more if you added just the rest of my life. And I've never met anyone that is perfect. I've met people that have pretended to be perfect, but never actually perfect. And that's one of the hardest things to break down because perfectionism is us trying to say, I deserve this. I've worked hard. I belong. I've done this. But perfectionism makes us feel like we can never, ever get to that end, which you can do that in a completely different way where you can say, you know what, I'm just going to keep moving my goal line. But that's why adding failure into that, because the one thing I've learned, and I don't know about you, but failure for me, as well as my successes, but failure particularly has been the thing that has taught me the most when it comes to my life. And Mm -hmm. that's the biggest piece, right? Is Wreck it. You can, with failure, there's two choices. You either learn from it or you repeat it again and again and again. So if you build in failure, that'll start to slow down and stop you feeling like the need to be perfect because none of us are. Nobody is. So give yourself the grace to say, you know what? I'm not perfect and that's okay because I did the best I could with the information I had today because that's all any of us can do. Because nobody can do the future. Nobody, everybody worries about the past, but you can't change it. So all you can do is recognize I'm doing everything I can with what I know now. Because you can always look back from yesterday and say, well, if I only would have known what I know now, I would have done this instead. And that's the problem. You can't because that is locked up. Until someone invents a time machine and totally screws up everything, there's not much we can do. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, I appreciate that as well, because it's, as you were talking about, like, the definition of perfectionism, it made me realize how hard that we are on ourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, we don't even think, like, okay, I'm a human being, first off, and second off, I'm going to make mistakes, and that's Mm -hmm. okay. So the next time you have a perfectionistic thought, I want you to ask yourself this question. The thing I just said to myself, would I say that to my best friend out Mm -hmm. loud? Because I'm guessing I know what the answer is. No way would I ever say that out loud to my best friend, because that would be the meanest, cruelest, most awful thing you could say to another human being. But yet, how many times do you say that to yourself? That's very true. (laughs) Yeah, but thank you for that. And I also want to talk about a little bit like the media. I know we dived into Mm -hmm. like social media, but if there were one or two things about the way media portrays mental health, Mm -hmm. what would you change? Mm, That is, that's a great question. So one of the ways I would say that they need to change the way they portray mental health is that it's not, you're not crazy. You're not, you're not seeing things. You're not hearing things. I mean, yes, there are, there are cases where you can get that, but for most people, it's being depressed. It's not taking a shower. It's not that you're seeing things and you're stark raving, talking to, you know, fruit that doesn't exist. You're not doing that stuff. So that's one of the first things is recognizing that just depression, just anxiety, just ADHD, just the basic pieces of the most common things are what people have. They don't have the far spectrum stuff of like when people think of bipolar disorder, they think bipolar is, well, I go from manic to depressed to manic to depressed to manic to depressed in like days. And it's like, no, that's not it. Bipolar (laughs) is a week and month long process of going from being manic to then being profoundly depressed to then being manic. And it's like mania lasts for about a week and a half to two weeks versus depression, which then lasts for about three to four months on average. And so it's those kind of things where, okay, if you're going to do it, do it right. Give them the real facts. Don't give them this stylized version of the way things look, because what they're actually showing is what's called emotional ability, which everybody has that, where we can have emotional mood swings and things like that, but that's a totally different kind of thing that's going on. So I would say, if you're going to do it, do it right. And stop trying to sell drugs on TV. Just, no. Yes. Not every, because drugs don't fix everything. Yes, psychiatric medication is important, but a lot of it you can do by changing the way you live your life, by changing the way you you handle your emotions. Because the thing that most people don't realize is that emotions don't start in your brain. And that's what people don't understand. They start in your body. 80% of the world, 80% of everything we perceive comes from the neck down. And that then informs the story Mm -hmm. that we tell in our brain that creates the feelings. Because really, it's an emotional equation. It's your feelings plus your thoughts equals your actions or your reactions. And so if you can figure out what your feelings are, and you can figure out what your thoughts are, you can change how you act and react. And that's why taking doing the most simple process in which I'll teach everybody right now, which is called box breathing. It's not putting your head in a box. It is 
a simple breathing process where you breathe in for four seconds, you then hold, you breathe out for four seconds, you then breathe back in for four seconds, and you do that four times while holding your breath at the top and at the bottom. So you breathe in, hold, breathe out, hold, breathe in, hold, breathe out, hold. And you do that four times for four seconds each time. That takes about a minute and a half. And what that does is it stops your parasympathetic nervous system where fight or flight lives and says, there is no physical danger because that's where all of our stories with our feelings start is there's physical danger all around us because this is 250,000 years of evolution of being tracked by wild animals, of being attacked by other humans, of being in small social groups of, you know, 25 to 100 people, these different things. And so by recognizing that it starts in the body, if you can control the body, then you can control your brain. Because now you're not stuck in fight or flight where you have adrenaline, cortisol, neuroepinephrine, and tons of hormones flooding your system that tell you I'm physically in danger. Because the scariest thing about adrenaline is if it stays in your stomach, heart, and lungs, which is where it goes when you're not moving around and running for your life, when it stays in your brain, it dilates time. It speeds up your brain and it dilates time by a factor of five to 10. So for every one second you're experiencing anxiety, you're actually feeling like 10 seconds has passed. So you get stuck in this anxious state, which feels like I've been anxious for the last 20 minutes and it's been like two because your brain is stuck in that loop. So if you can control your body to stop the adrenaline, stop the cortisol, stop that neurochemical dump, you can then shorten your anxiety cycle or your fear cycle by a factor of you know five or 10. That is incredible. Like it even flips the it's all in your head thing, like on his head. Wow. I yep. didn't I didn't intend for that. But <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I am pleased. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, that was like a really like great breakdown of like what it's like to actually learn how to control not even like control but manage your emotions to the point where it's like even your mind is like on board now because you're like oh okay it's not scary i'm just you know having a reaction to this situation and i'm gonna be okay because there's no real danger you know and and that's what it comes down to with pretty much everything because our perception is our reality and our perception is our thoughts and our feelings so if you can manage what you're thinking and feeling, you can literally change the reality that you're feeling and that you're seeing in that moment. Because how many times have you been in like, say, when, because that's part of the thing, like, right, when you go through a haunted house, right, they make the outside look scary. So that you're already thinking about how scary it's going to be inside. So you're already pre-primed to be afraid. You then step through the door and what's the first thing that happens? A jump scare. That then spikes your adrenaline. So then as you continue to go through it, they keep doing these, oh, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird jump scare. Oh, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird jump scare. And that way, by the end of it, you're so just adrenalized that anything would freak you out. So if your best friend who you've known forever was outside the door and said, hey, how was it? You would freak out because you're so adrenalized, right? Yes. But if you, you know, and that's the thing. And they do that purposely to get you in 
the Halloween spirit of being terrified, which, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's, that's very true. It's like all, a, it's kind of like the brain and the body kind of coming together to uh, just kind of give you a perception of things, you know? Well, if the brain, if your brain was not part of your body, I would hate to see what that would look like. That would be very strange. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clint, thank you so much for joining me. And before we wrap up, I have one final question for you. Sure. So what advice or words of encouragement do you have for somebody who is struggling to manage their mental health? Slow down, box breathe, and then write down what your brain is telling you. Then go do something else and come back and look at it. Because what you'll see is 99.9% .9 of the time, if you're honest about the story you write down, you will see that it is a complete and total lie, that it's a complete and total fabrication, and it's not worth your time and energy. Because we spend so much time being afraid and being anxious and being just knotted up in our own heads that we're missing out on actual life. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree with that. And once again, Clint, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Where can people find you? Thank you for having me. So you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at small changes, big impact dot the number four and the letter U. I post videos talking about stuff just like this. Uh, you can also find me at small changes, big impact dot net. And uh, from there, you can, you know, you'll, there's, you'll find information, you'll find videos. Um, you can also find me on podcasts like this. And you can also find my book on Amazon. So you can find me lots of different places. And I'll have all of those links in the show notes. Well, thank you so much. And everyone stay tuned for more empowering episodes on Rep Ed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rough Edges Podcast with Sarah I. Fox. If you want more exciting updates on the podcast, follow on Instagram at rough.edges.podcast. You can also visit the official podcast website at www.roughedgespodcast.com. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.